0: Today's event features Zena Hitz. Zena Hitz is a tutor at St. John's College. She holds a BA from St. John's College, an MA from Cambridge, and a PhD from Princeton. Prior to teaching at St. John's, she taught philosophy at Auburn University and the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. She is the author of Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life, and has recently begun the Catherine Project, an online non-credit Oxford style tutorial program on great books and fundamental questions. She is recipient of the 2020 Hyatt Prize in the Humanities. And if you enjoy today's event, you can purchase her book with a discount code provided by our co-sponsors, Princeton University Press. See more details in the chat. Today's conversation will be moderated by a longtime partner and friend of the Institute, Professor Jared Ortiz. Jared Ortiz is Associate Professor of Religion at Hope College and Executive Director of the St. Benedict Institute. He holds a BA from the University of Chicago, an MA from St. John's College, and an MA and PhD from Catholic University of America. And now I'll leave it to uh, our distinguished guest to, um for the conversation, but for our audience, just know that there will be an opportunity for you to participate later on during the conversation with our audience Q&A that will be moderated by Jared. But at any point you can ask a question using the q a button at the bottom of your screen thank you jared thank you Zena. i'm looking forward to today's event
1: wonderful well thank you so much michael and the lumen christie institute and thank you again all the co-sponsors and everyone who's tuning into this and thank you uh Zina for uh for writing this book, Uh, I have to say, um, this came, this couldn't have come at a better time for me personally. um, I too have been uh, experiencing a certain fatigue in my academic life. And so when I got the invitation to uh, read this book and interview you, I jumped on it and uh, reading the book was very restorative. So I'm grateful and I'm grateful we get to share some of that uh, with our audience today uh, so let's just start with a little bit about the book. Um, you write an autobiographical prologue uh, with the delightful title, How Washing Dishes Restored My Intellectual Life. Uh, and this is intriguing, obviously, for lots of reasons. Um, classically, obviously, the servile labor is uh, always contrasted with the intellectual life. Even, even today, uh, we're much more democratic about these things. We often see this as a hindrance or as a distraction from our real work. So maybe you could just start us off by telling us a bit about how washing dishes restored your intellectual life.
2: Well, one way of putting it, uh, thank you. And it's great to be here. And thanks so much for reading my book and being willing to talk to me about it. Um, and thanks to everyone at Lumen Christie for hosting. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, I had planned to come in person, hoped to come in person, but this hasn't worked out that way. But this is, uh, it's something, it's still, still connection. Uh as far as uh, washing dishes and intellectual life, I think it's helpful. I can tell you the account of my story for the people in the audience um, who haven't read the book yet, but I think one of the things that I could say in a general way is that our culture uh, disassociates our work from goods obvious human goods that it's meant to produce so there's uh so it's easy to work in a profession especially and it seems to me might be a bit of an exaggeration but the higher profile the higher prestige the profession the worse the problem is uh you can work away at something without really knowing why it matters and you're you're going to have incentives in terms of you know, money status position along the way. So it's it's easy for I think anyone in any profession to lose their way. But I think for professional intellectuals, for academics, it's particularly heartbreaking because it's the kind of thing that one wants to be all in for. So what, what happened to me in a general way is that I found a need to spend some time being a human being. <laughs> in a basic way, in order to see why intellectual life actually mattered in an ordinary human life, that was, able to, that was what made me able to see more clearly the importance of the kind of work that I do and you do and um, many academics do. So the, the good that academic institutions, universities, colleges uh, are supporting so what happened to me was this, I um, it was a natural bookworm. Um, my family were readers. Uh, we gotten lots of arguments about trivial matters of fact. Um, uh, I, think I, wa- I think I lost a lot of the arguments uh, until I went to philosophy grad school and then I started to win and then <laughs> arguments became less common after that. Um, I uh, went to a wonderful liberal arts college, uh, St. John's, where I teach now, which really um, matured my intellectual interest and broadened it and deepened it and uh, taught me really how to sit with a difficult text or a difficult question and work through it and get lost in it and not so much care about what the result was or um, you know, what conclusion I drew or what publication I got out of it, or what grade I got out of it, but to, just to love the activity of learning. I don't think there's much many places that are better than St. John's for cultivating just that. Um, so I was very lucky to be able to go there. Then then I went to graduate school because I was in love with learning, so I wanted to do more of it. And uh, I was lucky. I was again very lucky to go to pretty elite programs. became a professional academic, a scholar, in classical philosophy. Um, and that was also wonderful in terms of the quality of the learning that I was able to do. Um, and the you know I got further into the depths, uh, I think, of my field and the books I was interested in. But I did also get sucked into this um, sort of prestige and status game that happens in uh, various parts of academia, not everywhere, I don't think, but it's quite widespread. And uh, I lost touch with, with what I was doing. And that happened in two different ways. On the one hand, I was, you uh, know, I was on a research track. So I was a research academic research was supposed to be the center of what I did. And I liked research. I liked going to libraries. I liked figuring stuff out. I liked pouring through passages, but something about it didn't feel worthy of being the center of my life. I couldn't qu- it, it it didn't quite have the meaning that I wanted it to have and teaching which is the other thing about which academics orient themselves uh I didn't like factory style teaching in large classrooms uh every every classroom I was ever in had some magic in it there were always students who learned uh so I don't want to disparage the the whole business but it was very from my point of view for someone who wanted to do for students what had been done for me, yeah. which is to bring them into a, a, a type of inquiry, a type of conversation, um, which was worth doing for its own sake, which went on indefinitely, which um, was a window to all kinds of personal and intellectual growth and strange curiosities and um, moral quandaries and uh, just the whole depths of, of human history and human thoughts and all of these things. I found it very difficult to do that in the factory-style classroom. I had to reduce the books we were reading to bullet points and evaluate how well they were absorbed. And um, many of my students were there to fill a requirement and never caught the bug. Uh, so it, it felt uh, mechanical, it felt automatic and um, it was deeply discouraging. So I quit the profession. Uh, I uh, Went and lived in a, a religious community in Canada for a time. One that was very focused on manual labor and, and poverty. And uh, it was there that I was did this human thing where I lived a very full human life, very rich, uh, had basically everything I could ever want, except for intellectual life at a at a at a level of intensity that I was accustomed to. So I, I could read good books, uh, I could have an occasional conversation, but I couldn't do that kind of work. Mm. So I had to really think hard about why it mattered. Um, why it mattered for me and why it matter, might matter for the, the kinds of people I was around who were people from all walks of life, uh, all levels of interest. Um, and so the book came out of that, really that experience. Um, and uh you know the the insights that I got from living in a very basic way for a while, and and really having a chance to think about why intellectual life mattered. And so I just discerned out, I, I came back to St. John's and uh, and started writing about what I'd learned. Um, so anyway, that's that's how we got to here. Uh,
1: yeah, thank you. So much of that resonates with me. So I did my undergrad at the University of Chicago, the last remnants of the great books, some wonderful um, agnostic Jewish professors turning me on to wisdom. And then I went to go teach in the inner city for three years, which I loved, but also just spinning the wheels mentally. And I remember coming back and talking to Amy Cass. I don't know if you knew the Casses, but uh, I had caught uh, lunch with her. And I said, I, said, I want to I go to graduate school. And she goes, oh God, no, you don't. <laughs> I said, No, I do. She goes, What do you want? And I said, Well, you know, I want to read again. And I want to think and I want to talk and I want to, you know, I want to do what we used to do. And, you know, just go deep into books and just be in that kind of intellectual community. She goes, Oh, God, you don't want graduate school. You want St. John's College. <laughs> so I, that's when I enrolled in the, the, the Graduate Institute. Um, and she was exactly right, exactly right. Because um, I eventually did go to graduate school, which is totally dehumanizing and uh, pernicious. Um, but but St. John's is this like little oasis of uh, leisure and sanity, um, uh, where right, you just you sort of do things uh, for their own sake. Um, So, you know, so one of the other, so one of the main themes, right, so those sort of the two main themes in in running through the book, uh, you know, is, is, you know, learning for its own sake, you know, sort of championing learning for its own sake. And, you know, if I could paraphrase Mortimer Adler, um, you know, sort of contemplation, uh, contemplation is everybody's business, right? Right. Um, And you, um, you have this really um, delightfully promiscuous view of contemplation. Um, I'm going to read this uh, for, our, uh, for our audience and I'd like you to comment on it. Uh it says, uh, it is true, this is good because you take on Aristotle right away, this is great. <laughs> it is true that, Ar- that Aristotle conceived of contemplation too narrowly. It's good. Sophisticated philosophy of the kind he practiced himself forms the core of his notion of happiness. But it is evident, I love this, this is evident. This is so good. But it is evident that contemplation can be the relishing of the beauty of one's family and its common life, the sophisticated calculations of the physicist, the admiration of the curve of the wood being shaped into furniture, the nun singing the Psalms five times a day, the therapist or teacher poring over their human examples. All right, so really, um, really lovely. So maybe say a little bit about, you know, sort of why you think Aristotle's too narrow and then why these really seemingly diverse things uh, count as contemplation.
2: So uh, thank you for the question. Uh, I, I think that Aristotle's view may be a bit broader than I, than I describe it there. I'm, I'm simplifying to a point. I do think he thought the highest life was a philosopher's life, that is, his life. Uh, and philosophy for him, as anyone knows who's picked up one of his books, is a pretty high-end outfit. It's, uh, it's very serious. It's, it's pretty accessible for ordinary people, as far as dead philosophers are concerned. But it's, um, it's not the kind of thing that just anyone could work into their daily life. Um, and he knew that, and he fit that together with some of his other assumptions, and uh, decided that only a few people could really be happy, could really live the full human life, and everyone else um, could serve those people in one way or another, and they might find other diminished forms of happiness, but they wouldn't quite get to that that pinnacle of life, that pinnacle of humanity. So uh, I want to be one of the things I wanted to do in the book, whether or not I succeeded or not, I don't know. But I I didn't want to just say, you know, Aristotle is an elitist, so we got to get rid of that. Uh, I wanted to try to articulate why his view actually seems to me really too narrow, which is one of the things I'm trying to do in that passage. So it seems to me, first of all, so he thought, as uh, it seems, the view also appears in Plato's dialogues, um, manual labor was inconsistent with contemplation. Uh, that just seems to me wrong. In fact, for most of us who um, live these these uh, com- sort of computer information driven uh, lives, manual labor is the best way to actually think about something. Uh, and we, I think, most of us have experienced this. You do some gardening, you mop the floor, you take out the garbage, and and something opens up. Uh, and that's also, I think why people who work with their hands are often extremely interesting people, often more interesting. I mean, I don't want to get into class warfare, but then, uh, then people who push paper all day, because uh, pushing paper kind of eats away at your mind in a way that actually, I don't think manual labor necessarily does. So I, I wanted to say, I, I had that thought, which was definitely comported with my experience that manual labor opens up the mind actually and then i uh i was trying to get in that passage at a bit of what the core of what an act of contemplation is and it seems to me it's pretty simple it's you connect with an object something out in reality uh and you savor it Uh, that can happen in a moment. It could be looking at the sky, as I like to say. You know, when I'm in between my house and my car, it can be in these, um, yeah, moments with one's family where one suddenly sits back and realizes um, how beautiful your life together is at this particular moment. Um, that that just strikes me as being uh, continuous with. Um, Proving a theorem in geometry and suddenly seeing this structure that you've been trying to work at or um, having an insight into the way political communities work or any of the other things that are part of more high-end philosophy. So I I think it's continuous, it's different. Um, And I don't want to say that, I, I don't have a systematic account where you know, I, here's the principle, and here are the here are the 17 different styles of contemplation. Um, but I, I I suspect that if if one had the inclination, one could find a way of really working out in more detail than I'm able uh, just what exactly these these activities have in common, uh, and and why it why those why those moments feel like the culmination of our life. I mean, why does that, because that's really what we're looking for. We're looking for something which constitutes human flourishing. We're looking for something, certain activities or moments in which our life culminates. And if you think about that and you try to think about a little bit about what's in common, I think that you can get a version of contemplation out of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it struck me You know, in reading that passage it struck me almost, Tolstoyan at that moment, you know, where, you know, you have these sort of wellsprings of life, that's good, you know, whether it's Natasha at the ball or, you know, I Pierre know. hanging out the, the the carriage window, looking at the stars or something like that, right? And there's these kind of moments of, of overwhelming life. Um, and it's interesting, I mean, I I, I mean I, I appreciated so many of these examples, um, uh, you know, so, so what, one, maybe one of the few mystical experiences I've had uh, came when i was at st john's and i got to prop 47 euclid's prop 47 which i was doing in the coffee shop basement uh, in, in that main building and um just working it out in one of the booths and then it was like this like the heavens open it was like ah! <laughs> don't stop. <laughs> I was like captured for a moment. Um, and it was, it was really, it was really remarkable, but I've had actually similar, I, mean, I love that you started with the relishing of one's family and it's common life. Cause right. I've had those moments, right, which you don't have, you know, when you're sort of running one from one thing to another, you know, so, um, you know, you have to sort of stop, you know, and you just have to sort of be and right. just be present. Right. And then something happens. Right. And so either it's the focus, you know, working through the proof or just the being present to the kids, you know, wrestling and and jumping off the couch or something. Right. But then, you know, sort of something comes into focus. Right. And then there's, there's a light, you know, Um,
2: I do think it probably has to have a sense of grandeur in it. So I, I don't think it can be just a simple pleasure. Um, But I, I, yeah, I, I, but I, But I do think that those moments of grandeur, uh, it's not that they're easy to find, but you don't exactly, you can't predict where you're going to find them, and it's in all kinds of places. Uh, Anyway, that was my thought.
1: Right, so man, so so many interesting ways I want to go here now, but um, Right. So I, you know, I was struck by, you know, the, the the toggling back and forth between what seemed like these sort of natural examples, you know, um, uh, even even the nuns singing, right? You know, it's, it's a kind of routine thing, right? You don't need much education, right? It's just something very similar, the, 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 the really relishing, the delighting in one's family, you know, these sort of is almost kind of natural r- rhythms of life that one becomes attuned to, you know, and that's why I was that's why I was thinking Tolstoy uh, there, and so struck by these kind of natural examples, and then you know the more um, advanced examples, right, of Einstein and um, and others, right, who are you know in it to win it, you know, um, uh, I mean not to win some kind of exterior prize, right, but in it all in, you know, on, uh, on this thing. And it's it's the long pursuit in one direction, right? Um, and right, and so I know you say you don't have a systematic account, but, um, you know, I, I mean, do you see these as just sort of, you know, like that Einstein is really just doing more of those natural things or is, is it actually something different going on there?
2: Uh, that's a quite difficult question. I mean, it's a good question. Um, and it, it presses me in ways that are helpful, I think. Uh, I mean, what Einstein is doing is the, takes um, years of um, development of habits of seeing particular kinds of things. Um, in mathematics is uh, its own world uh, that's uh, full of these intense complexities that, you know, I, I love dabbling in it. I've never had a, uh, a gift for it. Uh, I've never gotten to the point where it felt to me like breathing just to think about it the way I gather it did for Einstein or anyone like that. But I, I do think that um so i i think that it's disciplined and it's a pursuit of a particular type of objects that have a certain connection with one another so the ma- the mathematics is its own thing it has a certain boundary as a discipline but i do think that You so and that's all important. I mean, there's a that's that's part of the substance of it. It's not just a um, looking at a different type of image and appreciating it in a different way. But I do also think that that type there are there are disciplines which may be uh, less rare, like you need a certain amount of certain kinds of mental talents in order to pursue a discipline like that to the level that someone like Einstein did. But uh, reading great books, for instance, uh, is something that virtually anyone who knows how to read can learn how to do. It also requires habits, it also requires a discipline, it requires motion in a certain direction, but I think if you if you use that as an intermediary activity between what someone like Einstein does and what a nun does or a, a woodcarver does, then I think you can start to it starts to get a little more traction, because uh, you know you can read the great books are about all kinds of things in the end, and your um, what you're really investigating is you know, various parts of reality, the way the world works, the way human beings work, um, the way human communities work, uh, what, what, what makes things go together, what makes them come apart. And uh, I think, so I, that's how I think, that's how I would think about it. It's um, ultimately if your mind is making contact with reality and you're savoring it, uh, that's common. Across these three things, that's different. Is the the habits and the disciplines, and of course the nuns have them too, right? It's it's just they're not. Um, the contemplation doesn't go through necessarily uh, intellectual disciplines. So you 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 when you pray the psalms five times a day, and when you live a life that's relatively enclosed and restricted, those words from the psalms start to sink in Um, and you, you, there are certain phrases which open up worlds to you. Uh, It's a very different kind of discipline than Einstein's physics or for that matter, reading the great books, but it is a discipline. It does move in a direction and it does open up uh, pieces of reality to you for you to savor.
0: Um.
1: I'm trying to think whether to pursue the objects or not. Um, Cause the objects were, uh, you know, so sometimes, you know, you say the objects, not any object is, is worth contemplating. Right. So video games, maybe not <clears throat> flipping through the TV. Right. Maybe not. <clears throat> so certain kind of objects are superior to others, but then you'll say really it's a kind of um, you say until the intellectual life is really a direction, you know, it's sort of an orientation, you know, towards, um, uh, uh towards reality um so um this was one of the so so that's why I was, I was thinking about these different objects uh, the ones that are worthy of uh, of contemplating and I love the example you gave of John Baker right who uh, who's uh, an auto insurance accountant or something um uh, you know dull man by day but like uh, you know, Peregrine Contemplator by night. You know, so he gets on his bike and just chases down Peregrine Falcons. You know, for twenty years, right? Uh, and writes this sort of penetrating study. You know, in falconry, um, <clears throat> which is philosophical and almost mystical in some ways. I mean, it's 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 mean, really remarkable to read that. Um, but so you have something like falcons, and then you have something like geometrical proofs, right? You know, you know, visible things and invisible things, and So does it matter, um, is there a difference between contemplating visible things and invisible things?
2: Oh, I love that question. (laughs) Uh, Let me say one thing, first of all, while I chew on that uh, about the types of objects and the worthy objects. So I, I actually try to be very careful about this because I think that anything can be in principle where uh, the object, it's just that there's sort of route, there are things that more naturally lead us into depth and richness and growth than others. So I think people can think about video games pretty seriously and they can get to some pretty interesting things. I've never tried it myself, but I i, I believe it. Uh, but, well, while doing
1: it, maybe after, I wonder, anyway, so, but yeah. Right.
2: But, but still, but you need some experience in it in right. order to, to build up the, um, the materials to, to understand it. So on the other, but, the, but there's, it's not, you're working against the grain. That is, these things are made to distract you. They're designed to distract you. People have designed them to make money off of your distraction. So you, you've got to, if you want to think about them, you have to fight against what they are. Whereas there are other things, which I think are not like that. So I, um, as far as visible versus invisible things, uh, I, I think that when I talk about uh, intellectual life perhaps being constituted by a direction, that is rather than a particular set of objects, that is it's the more, it's the deeper, it's the whatever seems to beckon on into something else. Uh, In a way I'm doing something traditional, which is, that's that's the way that platonism works so you you start with or and you see that in particularly someone like augustine who does it so beautifully right you start with um thinking about some garden variety thing and then you think about that until you get to invisible things and that's how your depth and your growth take place so that's the image of the cave and the republic and all these things it's classic uh and you know you can set up a uh a metaphysical hierarchy with, um, you know, physical things on the outside and mathematicals in the middle and then, you know, something else, whatever it might be, uh, the great beyond past that. Uh, I, I suppose if I had to ask myself, what does John Baker find when he starts looking at falcons and then goes into the depths? I don't know if I can say he finds invisible things. I don't know that he finds his way into mathematics or universals or God. Uh, those are all things which are possible directions that one can go in. But he he does find things that are well beyond just um, an animal with feathers. I, I, I mean, it's um, They're predators. So it's the book is really that he ends up writing is really a meditation on violence uh, and the attractions of violence to us. Um, the, The difficulty of getting to know an animal, what it's like to be an animal from the outside so John Baker clearly wants to become a falcon. He wants, he wants the barrier between humans and falcons to dissolve. But that's impossible. And I think, you know, I read it, I had the pleasure of reading it with students a couple of years ago, and they were all They were like, he he's not he's not interested in the birds. He's just thinking about himself. You know. <laughs> so, so, and you could see how you could read the book that way. Uh so he it is. It is getting to not universals with a capital U, not the forms floating up somewhere, but it's getting to something more generally human, more common, more, uh, more than well beyond a particular bird or a particular type of bird or a particular investigation. And if it didn't do that, if it didn't get to something human, something universal, something you could share, then you could never write a book about it, much less a good book that that people loved fifty years later. And I think will love even beyond that. I think that book's really a classic. So I don't know how to articulate what that type of knowledge is or that type of understanding is, uh, but it's definitely not merely visible. It's not merely particular. It 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 reaches it reaches into something that we share in common without. Without, um, without erasing the distinctiveness of his experiences. I don't know what more to say about it than that. It's a very hard question. Uh,
1: right, and so, I mean, what's, what's interesting is, um, I mean, so the, you give a, a wide variety of examples, John Baker, um, Malcolm X, Dorothy Day, Augustine, um, the um, Elena Ferrante novels, right? So you have all these, just, just a wide, wide, wide range of, of really fascinating examples. And in many ways, I mean, and they're all inspiring. I mean, I too, I just, I loved Malcolm X the first time I read it, you know, um, and um, it's, it's worth revisiting, you know, because we're thinking about. Um, but one of the things you say, and so your comments about Baker made me think about this is, one of the things you say in another part of the book is, um, you know, you should you should follow the intellectual life wherever it leads. I, I'm trying to find the quote on my notes here, but I can't. Find it. I,
2: I remember where I said it. No, no, that's right. That's true. I, 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 I accept the quote is valid.
1: So. <laughs> I don't know
2: what I'm going to get next, but we'll find that. <sighs>
1: um, but what I was struck by uh, all these people following the intellectual life uh, was they all end up in some radically different places, right? Dorothy Day ends up in Catholicism. Other people leave the faith and end up in, you know, socialism. Malcolm X at least initially ends up with um you know in some ways liberated from his vices but also with the most crackpot race theories uh around uh, which he later sheds you know cuz he's he's a a disciplined and you know virtuous man who keeps going in one direction right but um i mean it's, it, he didn't have to keep going in some ways you know or he could have died before he got there you know um and it would have been tragic right at the end of his life with those those theories. Um, so I, I don't know. It's it's interesting because uh, you know that uh, the intellectual life is um, amoral almost, or you know it's it it doesn't it's not it doesn't seem like on its own it'll always take you to the fullness of truth, right? On the one hand, the process does seem humanizing. But the ends, right? I mean, if Dorothy Day ends in Catholicism, and here at Lumen Christi, we say, "Hurrah, that's right." (laughs)
2: Um,
1: But then I uh, forget—you know—some other people end up in socialism, right? And you say, "Oh, you know, boo, atheism." Okay, not great. You know, sorry, you got it wrong, right? You know, but they both followed it with a certain amount of integrity, right? But they end up in these radically different places, you know. so, I mean, should one trust the intellectual life? Should one just follow it wherever it goes?
2: Well, I, I think the way I want to handle this kind of question is to really ask what the alternative is. So, so the, the alternative that it seems to me I'm somewhat familiar with uh, is you um, decide in advance, the... Um, the range of acceptable ending points, <laughs> and you devise paths towards those endpoints, um, and or you may uh, discover genuinely, or you also may think you that you discover genuine stepping stones. So this is here. It is the fullness of truth. It's within these boundaries. Um, you know, given what we know about X, Y, and Z, we know that this comes first, and this comes first, and this comes first. And, you know, if we think about a human being this way, then there should be a certain order and so on. Uh, I, I find that kind of structure to be um, really immodest about our capacities to understand and to guide another person's intellectual development. Mm. I don't know how contingent that is. So I don't know how much my view about that is shaped by having been born and raised and still living in a highly pluralistic uh, environment where um, I know that uh, for, I, I know that anyone can reach the fullness of truth let's call it the Catholic church, <laughs> which I also belong to. I also believe it's a fullness of truth. Uh, anyone can find their way there, but uh, who's going to find those just perfect starting points and those just perfect intermediate points. And then just happen to end up just between just these two goalposts that you wanted to end up between uh, not very many people. Uh, that is, we don't have a, uh, uh, so i i i'm a bit agnostic you know whether you know at some point in time we ever or ever could in the future um have a a a broad enough catholic community that something like that would start to make sense again but the way things are now um it 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 strikes me as being immodest uh, and limited so uh, I've never, I'm not persuaded when I see accounts of the right order of learning. I don't find those accounts persuasive. Um, my own learning was very, very eclectic uh, as I try to reflect in the book. Uh, and I don't think we can know in advance um, what what starting points are going to lead where and there's such a huge part of what I want to say is something positive, which is there's such an enormous richness to human inquiry. Um, and uh, we we do not know what lies down every pathway. Now, John Baker might have started with peregrine falcons and ended up uh, a believing Christian. Could have ended up a Catholic. I don't I don't think that happened. I can't quite remember. I read his biography. I can't remember whether he was religious or not, or whether he was a lifelong churchgoer or or what. Um, It's not part of his story for whatever reason, or it's not the story that the biographer told. Uh, But I can imagine that being the case, Um, just as I can imagine Malcolm X, had he lived another 20 years, um, you know, coming to yet more universal understanding of, uh, you know, an extension of that vision of Mecca that he had towards the end of his life. So uh, I think if um for me the key is that that thing that i bring up towards the end of the book called that i call the virtue of seriousness that is if a person has a zeal to for this more for this depth for if they keep if they if they keep restlessly searching for something beyond what they've got that seems to me a wonderful, beautiful thing. I don't think we should complain about that, just because at some given moment of time, they, they think something that we disagree with. Um, and we, we have to respect both um, that person's individual freedom and self-determination, and th- their own way of distinctively approaching the world. And we also have to respect our own limitations uh, as far as devising curricula, devising uh, orders of study, um, because I think, frankly, those those things have a lot of presuppositions. They 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 can, um, you know, they're they're subject to the limitations that every human inquiry is subject to. We're just not that good at thinking. It's the best thing that we do, but we're just not that good at it. Uh, and uh, for us to pretend otherwise is is crazy.
1: Uh, no, it's true. I and mean, so um, it's interesting. I was thinking about this. You have uh, your, your last chapter is about not sort of subjugating your intellect to these lesser goals. You know, obviously, like wealth is, you know, that's an obvious one for most of us ambition, pleasure. Um, and then politics, you take as the hardest one, right? And uh, that's obviously very uh, common now, especially in higher ed, right? Um, social justice, and like this is, this is actually the highest end, and right? So you should use all of your intellectual resources. To orient here, um, and it's it, and it does. I mean, I think you make a kind of persu- you make a persuasive case that it is a really narrowing of the intellect, and actually is can be dehumanizing, dehumanizing for others. You and I, you know, have a few punches at some of these Catholic schools. Uh, with, um, I mean, a lot of Catholic schools aren't Catholic anymore, but the ones that are really trying to be like, you know, we're Catholic. Um, <clears throat> they do have. Uh, they do sometimes produce pretty narrow um, graduates. Uh, not all of them. <clears throat> But um, you know there is kind of a fixed curriculum. There is a right answer, you know, um, and you know it's a kind of narrowing.
0: On the other hand, you know,
1: I think of Augustine, you know, and uh, you know uh, he he talks about you know that you know the usefulness of belief and the necessity of belief, and that actually one needs to subjugate one's reason to faith, right? And right, I mean, can one do that pedagogically at a university? Right, that's another interesting question. Um. But what this puts me in mind of, and this is, this is what I want to ask before we have to get over to the um, Q&A from other people, is um, I, was, I was thinking about the, um, the, the beautiful uh, prayer before study that uh, Aquinas wrote, or is at least attributed to Aquinas. Are you familiar with this, uh, this beautiful prayer? Um, and I won't, read the, I won't read the whole thing, but um, at one point, he, you know, the third stanza says, pour forth a ray of your brightness into the darkened places of my mind. Disperse from my soul the twofold darkness into which I was born, sin and ignorance, right? And so, uh, and this is something I think you know Augustine obviously resonates with. You see it all over the Confessions, right? The twofold, the twofold darkness. Um, so then, then, then here's my here's my question: is um, uh, does contemplation require grace?
2: So I uh, I th- I think. Contemplation in that big, wide, broad sense I described is a human thing. And I think uh, the, without trying to avoid the, the massive theological disputes that are off lurking <laughs> off to the right, um, those are what I would call human things. Contemplation is a human thing. It's a vehicle for grace. Contemplation in the Christian sense that is Contemplation of God
1: mm-hmm.
2: requires grace, um, but the broad kind of contemplation of the various goods of the world—that's that seems to me not to. Um, and again, I'm avoiding theological controversies because you might think that, you know, mere existence is a grace, and the human goods are all the products of grace, and so on. I want to avoid that, but I—I I, I want I, really my thinking is very much um, based on this. Classic slogan, right? That grace builds on nature. So these are these are human things, they're human activities, and uh, they are for that reason vehicles on which grace operates. So that's it's it's interesting to me that what the view you attribute to Augustine, which is uh, seems to be what he really thought, based on all kinds of things is not very consistent with the way he gives an account of his own life in the confessions. So he, he uh, and, and I, I don't know what to do. I've been thinking about this for some time to the extent that I have the bandwidth. I, and I, I, I wanna work it out because he's a smart writer. He's not a dummy uh, and he, he must have something in mind given the way that he constructs his story. But the way he tells his story is Oh, you know, I grew up in this kind, you know, I, I guess technically I was Catholic. I read Cicero and I wanted I decided right then I wanted wisdom. Now, Cicero's not an inspired author. In fact, from my point of view, he's you know, there's nothing more painful than reading Cicero, um, in all of philosophy. Like he gets the speech of Cicero and he wants wants wisdom. He starts looking for wisdom. He ends up with this Gnostic cult, the Manichaeans. And he figures out through philosophizing that what they're saying doesn't make sense. There's inconsistencies. So he knows it can't be true. Um, And that's what, um, you know, his mother's very worried about him. (laughs) She goes to her bishop and the bishop says, you know, he's gonna find his way through reading, you know, keep praying, but don't worry about it. He's gonna find his way through reading. So uh, then he, he ends up being, so what his reason ends up doing for him as far as I read the confessions is liberating him from false beliefs. So he ends up in this moment right before he discovers the Platonists um, as a academic skeptic. He doesn't think that you, that you can know that anything is true. Now then Platonism has a different kind of impact on him. I think still a rational impact, I think still a human impact but it's only through this human process of using your reason to destroy, so to speak, to sort of level the ground uh, of your false beliefs and of your pretenses, then grace can move. And that's what it does in his account. So that comports with my experience. That is, I spent a long time studying philosophy, um, not from a totally secular perspective, Uh, and what it taught me was that really brilliant people can believe all kinds of crazy stuff and you're never going to (laughs) find, you're never going to find, uh, you're never going to find a sound and valid argument for a thesis, which is interestingly true. I mean, that's just not going to, you're just not going to find, that's ridiculous. I mean, maybe that's maybe what I said was too strong and someone's going to send me an email tomorrow saying, you know, I thought of one that you should recognize this (laughs) one. Uh, but uh, so, so, you know, then I was, then I thought, well, okay, but, you know, what, what goes, what goes on here? Now, what has happened, I would say this, that my, because I, I have this, um, not unheard of, but somewhat unusual experience of, of having a conversion after getting a PhD in philosophy, uh, I, I can see, um, From my own experience on the one hand that this intellectual studies prior to that prepared me again by leveling the ground um and also that once that faith settled in it was uh extremely intellectually liberating so there was nothing constraining about it at all Uh, the contrary i could suddenly think more freely and more openly about things that i cared about and it opened up whole realms of inquiry that i hadn't even known were there so I um, that's why I'm very skeptical about the idea that somehow faith is a limitation on reason, that somehow you you know you 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 look at what the faith teaches and then you you use the intellect between these bounds um, because that's that doesn't seem to me either the way I've experienced my faith or the way I've experienced my intellectual life and uh, I am concerned that. Um some of you know i I I've met wonderful people, honestly, brilliant people from all of those uh, Catholic schools that I criticized they get a little bit in the end. so it's it's not anything universal, I'm saying. um but the um but it is true that I have also, it seems to me encountered some people who think that um, forcefully expressing their opinions and finding justifications for them is intellectual life and is the fullness of Catholic intellectual life. And that I think is a betrayal of the legacy of Augustine who was a restless searcher his whole life and who wrote five commentaries on Genesis because he never felt like he got to the bottom of it. So I I, I, I want to really encourage Christians and Catholics to um, use, use their minds freely and, not in a way that's foolish have a faith community have some support um try to find some really good teachers who aren't trying to shake you out of your faith so you need some basics emotional support spiritual support or whatever um but after that just let things go and and uh, trust god uh which i think is really what we're called to do in the intellectual life as everywhere else
1: love that, thank you. No, I think that's, yeah, I think that's right. Thank you, thank you. Um, I see we're probably at the time that we should start taking some uh, questions um, from uh, from the audience here. Um, so uh, here's one um, that I like, because uh, you, uh, actually all these are really good, but uh, this one touches on things uh, in your book, because you actually use a lot of, use art in a kind of interesting way. Um, So this says, uh, does visual, so this is Isaac um, uh, Chinchia asks, does visual contemplation say of paintings and oral contemplation say of music form us in different ways? Does such sensory contemplation offer a path to uh, a kind of holy sensuality?
2: Uh, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Next question. Uh, Uh, I do think, I don't talk about them much in the book, uh, the experience of music or the experience of art, just because it's, it's there are things that I really like, but they're not in the middle of my experience. So that's not something which I can talk about fluently and at length. Um, but I do believe that they are contemplative. I do believe they are leisurely. I can believe they can count as the culmination of a life. I think that they can, uh, as you're suggesting, um, elevate the senses, um, put the senses in a condition to receive something different. There's obviously some dangers there, right? You don't want to absorb your senses in such a way that you're not connecting with some broader reality. Uh, but um, but I, anyway, I think that's absolutely true. The one thing I think, um, I do think, uh, is that there's something about books and thinking distinct from creative encounters, so encounters with art or with music, um, where the the experience kind of go, has more and more depths with books and the mind. So there's something ab- about um, the focus of music and art on a, a particular experience, a particular sensory experience, it seems to me some kind of limitation. I want to think more about it because I don't. I don't. I, as as Jared's already suggested, I, I I like to have a big tent. Uh, <laughs> I, I I want everyone to be at my party, uh, but um, I also have that thought. Um, The people who seem to get to those depths as far as art or music are concerned are the the people who do it, Uh, the musicians, the composers, the, the artists, but for ordinary people, I think that there's some limitation to being preoccupied just with a particular sensory experience as opposed to a line of inquiry that opens up indefinitely into the future. I could be wrong about that.
1: And it is actually frustrating when you, you know, when you meet artists who actually can't give an account of, you know, what's sort of going on in the right. It's not that you want to explain it away or, you know, like you ruin the joke by explaining it, but no, it's like, you should be able to give an account of, uh, of this, you know, of what's going on. Um, so anyway, there's something about the account that appeals and maybe just appeals to us philosopher types and not the artist types, but um, um, yeah, there's just something that it seems to me, um, that fills out the experience that makes it richer, you know, when there's, when there's an account. All right, so we have another good uh, question here from uh, Alyssa Green, uh, who, or Gree, uh who says, how much does your advocacy of the non-productive, more observant intellectual life, and therefore a critique of uh, the publisher Paris culture, differ from Marxist analysis that capitalism reduces our time to the extent that we can pursue ends for their own sake. Do you think the type of observation and inspiration that's so valuable is possible without changing our economic and social culture?
2: Wow, what a great question. Um, uh, I, I think I've been in actually in the middle of one of my questions I keep on the side <laughs> is trying to think about the insight that Marx had into capitalism and its effect on us with respect to these questions. I do think there's a related insight. Um I don't know exactly what the relationship is between that insight and the more traditional Aristotelian thought that um, you need to have activities which uh, are worth doing in their own sake, for their own sake, that act as somehow the culmination of your life or your life is pointless in vain. Um, so I um, so I, I, I so basically what you part of what you're asking about is something that I, I don't yet know because I don't know my marks well enough it's something I'm trying to think about um, the other part of your question as to whether we need uh, a change economically and politically uh, I think the book tries to be uh, neutral on that kind of question. For the following reason, um, I do think that our economic, cultural, and political environment is deeply hostile to the values that I'm promoting. Um, I think maybe it always has been. you know that's why I talk about the world as being this sort of eternal source of social competition which threatens us in every age, you know, because it's in our hearts somehow. But I do think, that we face particular challenges in this age, that it may be worse for us than it is for others. Um, I would support any um, plausible prudent way of changing the overall environment, but I don't want to have my happiness or the happiness of my students or the happiness of my readers depend on some uh, revolution some fa- somewhere in the future. That is, I think we have to, whatever social and political changes, economic changes are good and necessary and prudent, we have to find a way to live a human life right now um, in our environment, because that's the way that human lives, basic human activities, are passed on. They're passed on from person to person. So you have to live the best human life you can right now and pass it on to others. And that's not to say that you that a person shouldn't fight for various reforms within the realms of prudence, but you don't want your happiness to depend on the success of those projects. Um, they're very much out of our control. Uh, and uh, so, I wanted in the book to express ideals that could serve to guide an individual in a tough environment. You know, I mean, say you're a Romanian political prisoner. You don't have a lot of options to overthrow the government and get a new economic and political system. You're stuck, you're in prison. Like you've got no options, but you have, you can get, you can develop these resources in yourself that will, that will console you and give you happiness. But also that um, those ideals can guide people who are in a situation where political, economic, social change is possible. So that, or even for something as small as being an employer and thinking to yourself, what do the people who work for me need in order to live human lives? Well, okay, they need more than what X, Y, or Z business is offering as a standard. I need to do something different. Uh, so I, I'm trying to give ideals that are adaptable to a variety of circumstances because I think we're not always in control of these things but anyway it's a wonderful question so thank you
1: yeah and I um, you know this is another part of your book which really gets to talk about was um, you talk about asceticism and discipline and uh, how these are necessary you know for the intellectual life that one needs to find a, a place of retreat. Um, actually your book made me appreciate my friends and my spouse uh, even more. Um, a friend who's an ophthalmologist who writes poetry to keep his sanity. And he just has to do violence. So just like cutting off the work, I'm just not gonna work more. I'm not gonna work weekend. You know, you just have to do, and then just find these places for poetry. My wife wrote a novel uh, last year while she was pregnant with her fifth child. Um, and so mm-hmm. yep. you know, just waking up early, staying up late, you know, writing while the kids are napping, you know, just different way, you know, and it was just, um, because she has this life that needs to be poured out somewhere. Right. But it requires violence to other things, <laughs> uh, right. not the kids, but I mean, violence to, you know,
2: <laughs> Or husbands, I hope. I
1: husbands, hope. Right. Yeah. Right. Don't have anymore. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, stuff happens, but, um, you know, you have to sacrifice things for things that are more important. Right. And so we all have time, right. So we, we get rid of Netflix and, and our phones, we would find a remarkable amount of time, you know, Um, So anyway, there's, you know, that's that kind of asceticism um, is something, right? So we don't have to wait for the big revolution. We can just revolutionize our own life, you know? Um, Though again, does that require grace? That's another question.
2: (laughs) Certainly Providence. Yes. uh, For sure.
1: Uh, So another um, uh, wonderful question, this one anonymous uh, and understandably so, uh, sadly. Um, How do you recommend graduate students and less nurturing institutions maintain their intellectual openness in a system that prioritizes productivity and very focused projects.
2: Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I I I think the truth that I experience this. Well, this is what I experienced. This is my truth, as they say. Um. It, my graduate program was very was narrow, specialized, focused on productivity. I learned a ton of stuff without knowing what the point of what I was learning was. Uh, I jumped through hoops, I passed exams, I filled requirements, et cetera. Um, what I started to find towards the end of my graduate studies, which was mind you, restless. Okay, I went to three different programs. And three different types of programs. I started out in classics and then I was in this place nearby called the Committee on Social Thought for a time. And then I went to a regular classical philosophy department. Um, And uh, but towards the end of that time, I started to find that um, the breadth that I had suppressed on entering graduate school since after all, I'd come from St. John's and studied literature and the history of science and political theory and everything under the sun, but that was starting to come back. And I was starting to be able to use different things from different disciplines to address certain questions. And that has only become more true as time has gone on. And I find that although it was, um, in a way, not—I don't know how to think about it objectively—but as a means to an end, stuffing yourself with stuff that you have to know and learning a certain language is is very useful in the end. It doesn't feel good at the time, but uh, you know, you, you as you get older, you'll find that you're less good at thinking new thoughts and absorbing whole new disciplines. And taking on things, and so the more you stuff in there, it's like soil that um, you can grow something later. So, an intellectual life is long. Um, it's it's not exactly like what you do in graduate school. Graduate school is a preparation, and uh, so I would have hope that your full humanity will find a way to come out in your intellectual work. Um, and that might happen within your own academic field or you might see another way to do it. Um, but trust trust that the hoops you're jumping through and the narrowness of what you're doing will be useful uh, in the long-term.
1: I would also recommend reading Zena's book <laughs> and then also getting a copy of um, Tienge, uh, The Intellectual mm-hmm. Life and keep it by your bed next to your breviary and and read it every single day read one page a day in graduate school and it'll remind you what you're why you're doing what you're doing and how even your narrow field connects to all other truth right so your pursuit god has given you something to to pursue some truth to pursue um that connects to all other truth right and so you are being chastised and um and disciplined to to study this piece of truth so submit to it but keep your sanity by remembering that it's that, that it's, it's connected to God's world and, and what he's called you to do. Um, yeah. I wanna, go, no, please, no. Um, so I was gonna, uh, I'm gonna combine just a few questions here. Um, so we had the university question, which is good because again, graduate school is a particularly dehumanizing uh, institution uh, in its current form. Uh, but there's a number of questions about those who are not in a university setting um so those are not connected to university uh those who have children uh and maybe those who are paper pushers themselves um what uh what what advice do you have for cultivating um uh, contemplation um outside the university setting and if you're in one of these jobs and how do you raise your kids to be contemplatives
2: so uh i uh it's, it's i think it's a crucial question so one of the things i think that I argue for in the book and that I try to promote as much as possible is that we we are in, um, uh, the universities are in a a massive crisis that seems to only get worse as time goes on. And and they frankly can't be trusted necessarily to safeguard um, serious study, humanistic study. So that means that ordinary people, working people, moms, um, you name it, they, uh, you know, all of, and all of us have some responsibility to try to take it on and pass it on to others. And the first thing you can do, it seems to me is the, I think the most important thing is to try to find some community to support you. So there are people who um, have some kind of uh, inwardness or discipline of some kind, which means that they can just pick up stuff and study on their own without any community or any support. I've never been one of those people. I think they're very rare. I think most of us need a friend, uh, a group, um, whether it's someone nearby or someone far away. This This is one of the silver lining of Zoom is that you can now expand your horizons as far as study is concerned. And study with that person, read a book with them, uh, read something that is difficult, um, but not so difficult that you're not gonna be able to motivate So somewhere in between the thing that's easy and the thing which is so impenetrable that you'll, you'll, you'll get discouraged um, and treat your encouragement as something that you want to cultivate. So, uh, and then this is uh, sound advice from uh, that Jared mentioned, uh, just car, carve out and defend some little chunk of time. Uh, his, his view is two hours a day. Um, my own view is checking in even for when you have nowhere near two hours, just touching base with whatever your project is, is better than nothing um there's another wonderful book called uh, how to live on 24 hours a day which has got to be one of the best titles of all time um from the similar era as sartelange uh, he suggests half hour a day of serious thinking plus three evenings a week of serious reading uh so you 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 can't people will devise schedules and routines i've i've never done that for others because i can't do it for myself but um I think just finding some something that's going to work for you in your life, but there, I think most people exaggerate how busy they are. Not everyone. I think there are some people for whom contemplative leisure is actually impossible. I think it's usually someone else's fault. Uh, I think it's grave injustice. So I don't wanna say somehow it's your fault if you can't do it, but I do think that you can do more than you think you can do. Uh, and to, and, and those other people, that community that you're gonna find, they're gonna be the thing that's, that helps you do that.
1: Uh, we have time for maybe one or two more um, uh, questions. Um, so here's an intriguing one from Sarah Bond. Is there a relationship between your view of contemplation and the Christian idea of incarnation, both in terms of the value of the flesh and the presence of the divine within fleshly things.
2: Hmm. Um. You know, I want to say yes, but I think the answer might be no, uh, because <laughs> because I spent so much time. In my intellectual life, in the with ancient Greeks who didn't believe in the incarnation, in the so you know it's it's get out of the material world and into the into the realm of the ideas. Now, I don't think that's a good way of doing things. I think we should believe in the incarnation. I think we should embrace the divine as present in bodies. But you can live the you can live an intellectual life the other way that they they in a way they invented it um, or they articulated it you know in a way that no one has since. So, uh, I, um, I do think that for me, the incarnation matters in thinking about an integrated human life. So, thinking about intellectual life as being a part of a human life. So, that I think, I do think I think the incarnation is at least the best way to understand it, whether or not it's the only way that um, you, you can't, you know, you, you need to habituate yourself to seeing, um, to contemplating virtually everything. You can't just disconnect from bodies and somehow float off into the ether But I feel like I'm not finding the right words uh, to articulate exactly what I mean. So I might be quiet and let Jared either help me out or challenge me a little more, whatever. No, I think actually this
1: follow-up question might uh, help situate that question um, uh, a little bit. Um, So maybe we can just try again by asking this question from Kevin Cambo. It says, on the notion of learning for its own sake, um, we have images of the intellectual Some images of the intellectual life seem to be solitary and monkish, Baker and Einstein, Plotinus. And then some uh, seem to make room for friendship and he has Augustine and Monica, right? Which is importantly, you have two ascents, right? So one, the Plotinian alone, and then the post-baptismal, incarnational perhaps, Mm -hmm. ascent with his mother with lots of chatting, you know, as they ascend Um, and lots of location details as well, interestingly Mm -hmm. enough. Um, So question, uh, 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 Dr. Campbell's question, uh, does the intellectual life take us out of the human world uh, for the sake of learning, or does it place us more justly in it?
2: Um, I think I know you, Kevin, hi, Uh, (laughs) thanks for coming. I'm having trouble fitting together the two parts of that question. That is, there's a question about solitude and friendship. And then there's a question about whether we think to get out or whether we think to live in the world. Um, and those feel to me very different. So, uh, because I suppose I do think that uh, quite a lot of intellectual life is communal in some sense. When you read a book, even if the author's dead, you are communing in some way with another human being. It's not really isolated. Uh, now, John Baker was pretty isolated; and it was him and the birds, and the, but he read a lot of poetry. Actually, he was he he and and Melville, which is pretty evident if you read his stuff. So he also communed with other thinkers, other um, encounters with nature. So I want to say that on the one hand, that I. I think solitude versus community is not necessarily the way I would put the question. Um, and I, in, in a way, I don't know about um, how to piece together my individual wisdom that I'm pursuing so zealously and restlessly, right? Supposedly, um, in fact, I'm on Zoom all the time, but let's imagine that I'm really doing that Uh, um, I don't know how to put that together with um, (coughs) the sense that I want to also share things I've learned with others. Um, I want to help build communities where this type of learning is possible. Um, Do I want to live a fully human embodied life in the world? Yes. Is that all there is? I wouldn't think there was, so I don't know. I feel like I've gotten more questions, and now I'm swimming even more <laughs> water, and I don't know how to get out of it. Um.
1: So uh, now Austin, Austin's going to cut us off, but I'm going to keep talking. Um, so, um, so one of the you, you tell the you talk about that beautiful movie, which I haven't seen yet, but it sounds beautiful, The Hedgehog, um, about how you have this isolated woman in this you know very frivolous apartment building, um, but it's sort of her devotion to reading and learning. That attracts people to her, right? So on the one hand, you talk about there is this sort of necessity for isolation and retreat, and yet it it, it seems to bear fruit in community, right? Benedict right. goes and he hides in a cave for three years,
0: right. and yet God manifests him,
1: right? And, he, right? and he, the founder of you know the, the uh, Western monasticism, right? right? So there is that interesting interplay between you know right. solitude and. Right. Bearing fruit in in community and true community. I
2: I suppose I do think if I, if you put the question that way, I think, I do think I suppose that withdrawal is ultimately for the sake of engagement. Um, so I do think that, I do think that community, I don't want there to be a sharper division. And I think I'm probably muddy in my own thinking about it. I think it's my incapacity to answer this question shows that. Um, but I suppose I do favor in the end, uh, uh, the 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 community um, the, the bonds between others um, although I don't know whether it, 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 that seems tightly connected to the the shared reality that they're inhabiting and beholding and so on um, there's only certain ways of being with others that um, that really make us fully human uh, so maybe that's why the question's hard for me, but thank you very much. Excellent questions. You guys have asked very, very good questions, especially Jerry, but all of you, they're very um, serious and very directed and I've, I've been on the ropes. So I appreciate that very much. Thank
0: you. <laughs> Michael, well, and I want to um, thank you uh, both on behalf of our, our viewers here, on behalf of Lumen Christie Institute and on behalf of all of our co-sponsors Um, for this fantastic conversation. Of course, we always have more questions um, than we have time for. And um, the conversation doesn't have to end here, nor does the communing as uh, Zina pointed out, because in fact, you can um, go home and commune with Zina through her book. And we're grateful for Princeton University Press for offering a discount for all of our viewers. Um, So you can go onto their website, support university presses today. Um, and purchase uh, for a 30% discount there. Um, I'm grateful to all of our co-sponsors who've helped make this event possible. The Point Magazine, the St. Benedict Institute, Calvert House Catholic Center, Princeton University Press, and the Hank Center for Catholic Intellectual Heritage. So once more, thank you, Zena. Thank you, Jared, for this great conversation. And we look forward to when we can have you back again here in Chicago. All the best.